Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About The Weather, political discussion that from the outside may just look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. And the Royal Wedding. And the Royal Wedding. We watched God it this bless week. It. God it was damn. so good. Um, I thought it was really daring that the BBC put on an interspecies wedding where you had <laughs> lovely Meghan Markle coming out in her dress looking all lovely, yeah. marrying a lizard man. I think Harry looks more like, you know that old German World War One propaganda, uh, like British World War One propaganda about the Germans, where James it's just Hewitt. like, yeah, well no, where it's just like a giant um, gorilla with a, a hat on it that says Kultur. Oh yeah, he does look. He kind of looks a bit like that. Yeah, um, I, I was, I, the uniforms, mm-hmm. they're real fash, the men's uniforms. I mean, all uniforms are, I Yeah, suppose. but the men's was like the black and the red. Um, and like the little boys in like little Im- like imitation ones. I suppose it must depend on regiment, but I have this image that they used to get married in like the really bright red fusiliers. Like, yeah. I don't know if, no, if that's the regiment. I or think anything, maybe but... they've changed. Maybe they've updated them to make them look not so stupid. But like, um, um, William had all of his, you know, bottle tops, <laughs> and Harry had less bottle tops. They mentioned how he was wearing he a more extra, understated uniform. He had an extra thing, a de- an extra doodad, an extra piece of flair. <laughs> he did have a around his neck, of flair. Yeah, uh. But like the commentary was... Actually, I'd be okay uh, with the royals if they had to wear all that, but also a little badge that says, ask me about my pieces of flair. <laughs> <laughs> the, the commentary on the wedding was really weird. I, I presume... That the BBC have some kind of like style guide as to how presenters are supposed to refer to like ethnic minorities and people of colour. Yeah, they do. It just like says that. modern. Um, yeah, and this one, it was like they were stumbling so badly over the fact that they weren't sure whether to mention like a biracial for what for all how clumsy that is. Mm. Like the biracial. Like at one point, they interviewed this guy from Brixton who was a DJ who Harry and Meghan Markle had gone to uh, see. Um, and they were like, as a biracial person yourself, how do you feel that the royal marriage is going to be biracial? And it's like, Hugh Bowen, what, Hugh, what's his name? Hugh Edwards. Hugh Edwards, yeah. Mm. Hugh Edwards, what are you, what are you doing? Why yeah. are you talking like this? There was this. I expected them to like say, yes, it's very modern. I really feel that Meghan Markle is going to add some kind of hip hop swagger well, it's to the Windsor family. It's really terrible. It was the, um, it was. You yeah, have references to it. This is definitely the most modern royal wedding, if not the most modern royal wedding, definitely the most modern bride. And it's just yeah. Oh, have you seen those uh, biracial people they have now? So modern, they're so they're, new, they're so, so new. hip. In like guys, tea. Like well done on establishing, reinforcing the barriers between white and blackness and the middle. Yeah. What? What? Yeah, and um, the queen came out looking like a off cake. She always wears really weird colours. Isn't it like meant to be an understated way to stand out? So she wears like massive like lime green or fuchsia or something like that. I think the Queen's just an idiot. <laughs> I think she's an idiot and she does and she just does what she wants. Um, how dare you Whereas the other royals, they wear what to they're the told to wear, as shown by how Meghan dresses now. Oh yeah. Um and saw her today and she looks exactly like the rest of them. Um, and, you know, handing her purse off to a servant just like a feminist would. <laughs> I'm glad to see that the royal family is embracing feminism by maybe not killing this one. <laughs> I do hear that on the morning of the wedding they had to wrestle Prince Philip out the Fiat Punto where he spends all of his time there. <laughs> Waiting. He says it feels it makes him feel closer to Diana. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's I think, oh, Like, this. 
people who like Diana, and I get it, ish. But also, no. Fuck off. She's another fucking aristocrat. Yeah, she was stupid and a rube and got um, got married thinking that she was going to be a nice wedding when, you know, the crown hadn't been out so people didn't know just how broken Charles was. It's because of, of when she, like, it's when she died. It mm. was, like, put out, like... In our kind of national mythology, it was put about when, as a time when the British finally broke their stiff upper lip. But actually, it was just the first time that people started reporting on it and kind of uh, spread about a kind of nominal egalitarianism about mm. the way that British people interacted with each other, that mm. they were less hierarchical and li- less likely to like defer to authority. I, I think it's bollocks. I think mm. it's a, a kind of a capitalist modernity mm. thing as well. But... It was definitely a thing, and the reverence for Diana is because of because of when she died and the state of Britain at the time. I think it's the thing that does make me sad about her mm-hmm. dying, though. That yeah. if she'd married um, Dodi Al Fayed, uh-huh. then Muhammad Al Fayed would still be talked about, <laughs> and he just gets weirder and weirder with his thing of living in a Scottish castle now and being utterly convinced that Scot the Scottish people, the indigenous Scots, were originally <laughs> Egyptian. And settled there. Well, and he has proof s- of this in a castle. Have you not seen Highlander? <laughs> there is that. was that. a documentary. <laughs> but, yeah, so that makes me sad, though. They don't get enough Mohammed al fayed anymore in the news. Because, you know, no one listens to him anymore. He's, he's aged out. We've lost all... We've lost all, he's still all dead, the, is he? All of the, no, he's still alive. But yeah. he, we've lost all, all the characters... <laughs> Now we've got kind of Russian billionaires as opposed to like Egyptian billionaires or Arab billionaires. Like and their eccentricities are nowhere near as funny. <laughs> yeah. They're really depressing. Having a tiger chained in a basement underneath <laughs> Kensington is uh, not so much a foible as a warning. Having, you know, white clean basements with <laughs> yeah. big drains in the middle. Tiled basements. It just makes me nostalgic for the time of the czars. <laughs> But, yeah, it was weird. The whole coverage of the wedding was fucking bizarre. Well, it is bizarre because it's it's a weird thing. Um, the monarchy, yeah, and it's just there's like a lot of different ways that people talk about it. like the ways people defend it, mm. and there'll be the ones of like you're being a killjoy. Let them have their day. Let them have their fun. Um, it's and let people who enjoy it just enjoy it. Stop trying to bring them down, like it's the football. Yeah. Um, that's their secret. It's it, the secret is you. It's it becomes not quite a subculture, but a mm. hobby. Mm. Maybe it's like oh, I'm a big royals person, mm. so I do all the royal things like tea towels. Yeah, and it's like oh, and they're, they're talking about how you know she's because she's biracial. It's gonna modernize the royal family, and they're gonna be more racially inclusive. Look at how good it is that a black girl can look at her and go, I can be a princess too. Yeah. and it's just. You know she's going to be living like a life of incredible ease from money that was derived through slavery. <laughs> That's kind of, it's kind of like reparations one at a time. But I think there's probably better ways of doing it. It's going to be the greatest acting role of her career because I mean like if she's going to have to act like that now, the mm. day the way she acted on her wedding, she's going to have to act like that silent <laughs> every day. Yeah. For the rest of her marriage. Which will be, I give them seven to ten years. I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I think um, how long their marriage will last is completely irrelevant to 
except that it'll be another one, another marriage that we have to pay for. Although it'll be less, yeah. it'll be more understated if they, <laughs> if that's the case. Unless she's like doing, I just thought uh, when we were coming over, um, she's doing might be doing method for get out too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like a British version of get out. <laughs> yeah, your mum and dad. Do they know I'm black? <laughs> To be fair, Philip looks like he's I would blind. have I would have made Obama a member of the Order of the Garter twice. <laughs> this it's just so grim, all of it. It makes me so <sighs> Especially like, a, like a, at the last royal wedding with um William and Kate. Mm. There was it was that one, wasn't it, where the those anarchists got black bagged in Soho Square? Yeah, that was terrifying. There was a video of that. I had a huge argument on Facebook with someone about it. Yeah, where they, where they were building a were they building guillotine or gallows out they of balsa wood? They were building it out of paper, like in card and, and that, balsa I wood. I don't. It was think like it, no, they, it was bit, little bits of balsa. Wood. Oh, it was like okay. really, you know, it's weak, flimsy wood. But it was, it was like, in it was in the middle of Soho. It was in Soho like, Square. Way away. It was in Soho Square. Yeah. Um, and they got black bagged by plainclothes police officers. And yeah, it was terrifying. Didn't even have anything like that this time. Mm. Because people just can't muster up the energy to care. Well, no, it's a tactical decision. I mean, he's not that far up the succession, so technically... Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like all the stuff when about... When George goes to school. <laughs> well, it's um, all that stuff about, you know, how great it is that they've even... That Harry is, is able to marry a biracial woman. And it's like, first off, he's nowhere near in line to the throne. Mm-hmm. To pretend also that it wasn't ultimately there wasn't ultimately a yes or no from the queen or from clarence house it's yeah. ludicrous um she still would have had to go through the fertility checks yeah. that they put through any prospective person who's coming into the royal family it's something that didn't really get covered especially in the like, the american coverage um what, the they fact kind that of... they lock someone in a basement and go through they have a rustle in there i don't know I can't think of it any all the words are upsetting me wrestling wrestling their junk yeah R- wrestling up their junk yeah they don't quite get the fact that, yeah, right, the modern family individually may be somewhat modern, hmm. but the institution itself is so hideously foreign to what anybody in a normal society, like a normal modern society, would would be able to comprehend. Hmm. Like the whole thing about like whiteness and, and blackness, and like, oh, they've, they've, you know, this is finally them being inclusive. And it's like, you realize that ancestrally, they kind of view the rest of the British population. As like racially inferior, mm-hmm. they have exactly they have exactly that. That's Look, why I've got. Been, it's why it's I've been got some a long sympathy. time. It's been a long time since they had Nazis. It's why I've got some sympathy for like <laughs> the lizard thesis. Yeah, because yeah, it was one of those occasions when I was watching it on on Saturday mm. that you look at them and if you stare at them for too long, it's like you are profoundly mm. odd. Yeah, Har- you know, um, Charles and not Charles, um, William and Harry are quite good at playing normal yeah they've had um, the most media training whereas yeah, yeah charles and his mother and um philip just well you can't blame philip because it is it was a corpse that was sitting up there god he yeah he really yeah. looks like he's uh but my highlight of the entire wedding the last thing we'll say on it the la- the, the highlight of the whole thing was prince edward dropping his hymn sheet and no one wanting to share with him <laughs> and him mumbling through hymns because Prince Edward is the How best. does he not know them by now? I mean, you must have to do that. He's forgotten them. <laughs> I, I can honestly... Every week. That's 
forgotten. You've got a particular soft spot for Prince Edward, haven't you? He's the fail prince. He's the best <laughs> prince. He's the best one. If the entire royal family was like him, our lives would be significantly better. In other eras, he would have, have just gone act- on an adventure to like find tartan paint at the North Pole or something. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to discover the lost city of gold. And he'd be found like wandering around Marrakesh. <laughs> yeah. Having forgotten English or you something. You know like how um, the Dutch royal family are like normal? Relatively, uh, yeah, yeah. They've got a re- much more restricted role. Yeah, um, and you know they ride bikes around town, and they're mm. just like kind of yeah, like almost normal people. Yeah, um, I think if Prince Edward was in charge, they would accidentally stumble into that, and he'd <laughs> accidentally get rid of the monarchy because he filled in the forms wrong. <laughs> yeah, um, we forgot to renew the the lease on yeah. England, and so you know we signed give, with the sea. So we give back that diamond to. To India, we you know we end up yeah. doing all kinds of things like that by accident. <laughs> yeah, that's why he's the best prince. But yeah. So, what's our main thing? So this week we're going to conclude our series on the Celtic nations. I finally made my peace with that terminology because <laughs> I just can't think of anything else. Uh, this week we're going to do Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, Scotland's pretty. You just you love pre-laughing at Scotland. I am. My stepfather is Scottish. <laughs> ah, there we go. So we do actually have a link. I was going to say that neither of us actually... I've been to Scotland once I've been to in Edinburgh my life. I've been to number Glasgow of times. once. I've been to Edinburgh a number of times. And all I can say is it seems very, very English. It seems oh, you mean North no Northern England? <laughs> it feels absolutely no different to Soho, the festival. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're going to talk a bit about the history and how it fit into the empire and just events cool. of Scottish history. Um, so Scotland has quite a unique place within the British Union. Um, both countries currently form a unitary state, which are both part of the same state, same mm-hmm. kind of imperialist state. They're not, uh, uh, as such, a su- like legally a subject population, um, like Wales, and there weren't. Um, they're not like a province like Wales, I should say, mm. and they're not kind of like Northern Ireland, like a special quasi-independent mm. part, although they do have their own their own parliament. Uh, Scotland played a disproportionate role in the British Empire in its expansion and exploitation of the rest of the world. So the Scottish and English crowns were united under James I in 1603, but their political, legal, religious and monetary systems all remained separate. Mm -hmm. In fact, the English Parliament actually blocked several early attempts at political union um, because they thought it was some kind of... um, like royal plot because the only thing that England and Scotland shared was the king they mm. thought it was some kind of royal plot to like get his supporters into England and like take over the state and rule like a French king that's the most English reason for why the Scottish have their own law most of English English like middle history like mm. between like the 1500s and the 18 probably the 1900s is mostly marked out by suspicion <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds about right <laughs> um that meant that England and Scotland, when they were starting their empires, were completely separate in terms of colonisation. England had several colonies in the New World in the 1600s. Scotland had no colonial presence in the Americas until 1621, when James I granted a charter to colonise what would become Nova Scotia, which is New Scotland. Um, the, the funniest um, episode of like Scottish empire building was something called the Darien Scheme. <laughs> so, just to explain the background of this... Under this William is so of Orange, yeah, this, this is, is pretty really good. Under William of Orange, that's uh, 1688 mm-hmm. onwards. Um, the Dutchman. Yep. 
England had started to become kind of an imperial power, and so to compete with other European countries, it required a massive military build-up. Hmm. The war efforts were funded through a national debt, which was serviced increasingly by taxes on trade rather than land. It was quite a new thing in Europe at the time. It meant they could run a national debt, pay for a lot more than their competitors could because they were still taxing, like just raising taxes off land, hmm. off peasantry and that. Um, the largest component of customs um, was levied on co- the colonial trade with the Americas, you know, hmm. tobacco, sugar, all that kind of good stuff. Um, but the Scottish traders could circumvent this so they could benefit from their proximity to English trading infrastructure, but by using their own ships and crews, they could avoid customs. Mm-hmm. Uh, to counter this, the English um, to counter this, the English initiated the 1660 Navigation Act, which required all trade goods to and from England or any English colonial possessions. Um, they had to be transported in English ships, sailed by an English captain with a crew of at least 75% English sailors. Um, the Scots were then kind of barred from trading with kind of the rich, richer colonies mm. in America. So to get around it, a Scot named William Patterson set up the Company of Scotland and aimed to set up its own colonies so that they could get around this restriction. Uh, he came up with something called the Darien Scheme. So it's, a, it's an attempt to establish a colony. Did he call it a scheme? Uh, they did call it the Darien Scheme. That's fantastic. Um, the caper. <laughs> the, ca- <yeah. laughs> the fiasco. <laughs> uh, they attempted to establish a colony called Caledonia on the Isthmus of Panama in the Gulf of Darien in the late 1690s. The aim was to have an overland route that connected to the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. So, roughly similar to where the Panama Canal is today. Hmm. Not such a bad idea in kind of from a distance, but hmm. up close... It was a lot more difficult. Uh, 1,200 colonists left Leith in 1698 to set up a town called New Edinburgh. England forbade any trade or assistance to Caledonia, leaving the colonists needing to trade with local Kuna Indians, bringing heavy wool fabrics and combs, which is exactly what you need in a hot and humid swamp. Yep. Uh, Spain. Why did they do that? Um, because all they had. <laughs> they couldn't. They could. They have. They have nothing. I mean, if you Just look at turning up to South America, is like, yeah. don't you want haggis? <laughs> Poor Scotland. (laughs) They're in a difficult position, but they're trying to make the most of it. Unfortunately, Spain also has a claim to the area. Uh, They don't take kindly to this, so they start to, you know, shell the town. Um, In 1699, a second fleet of colonists set sail for New Edinburgh, not knowing that the first group had already uh, been under attack by the Spanish and voted to leave. (laughs) Uh, And then the colony had been burnt to the ground. It was finally abandoned in March 1700 after a siege by Spanish forces which blockaded the harbour. William Patterson had lost his wife and child in the failure of the scheme and returned to Scotland and became a strong proponent of the Act of Union. (laughs) The interesting thing and where this impacts on Scotland itself is the financial cost. Mm -hmm. The Company of Scotland was backed by approximately 20% of all the money circulating in Scotland. (laughs) Uh, its failure left the entire lowlands area in substantial financial ruin and was an important factor in weakening their resistance to the Act of Union. So when it... It's like if a country decided to get themselves out of a bad situation to put all of their money in Bitcoin but not know what Bitcoin is. Yes! <laughs> this guy just... said he could double my investment and, he gave, and fast. And he gave me all these Bitcoins. <laughs> Big sack of Bitcoins. <laughs> Shouldn't these be uh, on USB? No, big sack. (laughs) The weird thing was, when I was looking this up, um, you have a lot of like, 
uh, broadsheets who cover it every now and again. Sorry, I'm just giggling yeah. now at the idea of like a sack of USB drives that's just full of old Kazar files. Um, when I was looking at this like broadsheets do Hmm. kind of coverage on it every now and again and obviously we're doing a lot of coverage on it with the independence vote and like it's definitely weird how they report it now like the Guardian um, were um, like interviewing people like it was like some lost bit of history Hmm. Um, interviewing people saying turns out the Scottish are actually great empire builders it's so it's so good. They were they were this close to building a great empire, and it's like that's so fucking Guardian. Yeah, it's like imperialism is a bad thing. Yeah, and they're just like, well, you see, they just didn't do it right. Yeah, the thing is, any time an attempt at imperialism fails massively, we mm. should giggle at about giggle about it. It's sad Definitely. that it failed because the Spanish were better at it. <laughs> yeah, had all the guns. Yeah. yeah. Um. And the Telegraph are like, um, the farcical story of Scotland's ill-conceived colony in the jungle. Like, those turn up Scottish... into the jungle and slip on a banana peel and all die. <laughs> yeah, they can't even organise their own <laughs> colony. It's like... It's so terrible. God, it just yeah. says so much about their attitudes. Um, so this was an important factor in kind of weakening the Scottish bourgeoisie, who'd invested a lot of money in the scheme. Mm. Um, it weakened their uh, resistance to the Act of Union, mm-hmm. which came around in 1707. Um, Article 15 of the Union actually granted £400,000 to Scotland, which was a sum known as the equivalent to... um, uh, as a kind of means of compensation for um, the investors in the Company of Scotland. Hmm. Um, So you have the kind of Act of Union. They can't quite kind of... They can't obviously can't do colonies on their own. Mm. England have a more powerful navy. They have an established set of colonies and a trading infrastructure and all that stuff. So the bourgeoisie are kind of left with the option of, well, if we want this, we're going to have to kind of get on board with it, mm. um, which is what they did. It's interesting as well that compared to what we've talked about, about traditional colonies and imperialism and the links to capitalism, this wasn't something that was... Uh, this wasn't like free market warfare, if you know what I mean. Mm. This wasn't like putting them out of business by offering a better product or competition. Yeah. This was straight like mercantilism, mm. which was like the pre-capitalist phase. Yeah. You know, it was arms and warfare and putting them out like that, mm. which is weird. Um, so while the lowlanders are losing all their money, uh, highlanders, um, which was kind of, it's always been a quite a significant divide in... Scotland, lowland tend to be more urbanised, speak English. Highlanders tend to tended to speak Gaelic. And are immortal. Um, and are immortal, unless um, someone chops off, uh, another immortal chops off their head, mm-hmm. um, which became more and more difficult when the uh, English made them surrender all their swords. Mm. And, Very that's and that's Ergen why the was this... able to run rampant through <laughs> exactly. the Highlands of Scotland, exactly. leading to the Highland clearances. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, up until kind of the 1700s, uh, Highlanders still followed the clan system, which mm. was a kind of old feudal feudal remnant. Mm. So you have the clan being ruled by one family from which the chief was drawn. The chief held clan lands in trust and rented it out to like middle manager types called taxmen. Mm. That's T A C K, not T A X. Um, they lend then let the land on to subtenants who would then um, work on the land, pay rent, and might employ like mm. uh, what they call cotters, which are like serfs, yeah. basically villains. So it's an old feudal remnant. Mm. Um, the chief could then also call on all of those orders of society to provide military service, um, 
in the case of uh, raiding other clan chiefs or to the king of Scotland or to the king in waiting, mm. which is what they did with um, Charles Edward Stuart, otherwise known as Body Prince Charles. Uh, in 1745, they mustered to support the Jacobite Rebellion. Um, it ended with a crushing military defeat at Culloden. It ended with a crushing military defeat at Culloden less than a year after it began, and it was also the last pitched battle on British soil. Um, previously, the British state had let sleeping dogs lie after kind of mm. other Scottish Highland rebellions. This time, however, it was quite different. They were accompanied by a kind of legitimate heir to the throne, and they got as far south as Derby. Mm. So it really put the shit up um, the British establishment. Decided to break the military power of the clans of the Highlands, requiring all swords to be surrendered to the government, and prohibited the traditional wearing of clan tartans and kilts. Um, on a more material level, they passed something called the Heritable Jurisdictions Act, which removed the power that the chief held over their clans. So traditionally, these clan chiefs had exercised like the role of like a local magistrate or mm. a, a, a lord, basically. Mm. The, the, cra- the powers that the crown usually reserved for itself. Yeah. They exercised it. Um, but the, um, the seizure of the kind of estates of rebel nobles had allowed the crown to take back a lot of these powers. Um, under the act, these rights were purchased back by the government from clan chiefs some of whom received thousands of pounds in compensation, which destroyed the link between clan chiefs and their subjects. Uh, This shift kind of accelerated a process that had been going on for quite a while, where these big clan chiefs, because they would have names like, one is like the Duke of Argyll. Mm. So they're turning them from kind of old feudal lords into like monetary landlords. They own the land. Well, they say they own the land. The kind of system was... Uh, dependent on the idea that they kind of a, a nebulous idea that they held the land in trust for the clan so that everybody had access to communal clan land yeah in reality they actually owned it yeah it was they had changed the system they now owned the land um, so chiefs had become landlords usually living closer to Edinburgh or London now um, and concerned with extracting value from the land rather than extracting like military service from the people who lived on it that logic led to clearing out all the previously feudal, now newly redundant, villages from the more profitable grazing lands. Um, the clearances themselves started in kind of 1780s. Um, they were extremely brutal. Um, the Duke of Sutherland was one of the most notorious evictors. Uh, from 1811 to 1821, 15,000 people were cleared from his land to make way for uh, more profitable sheep grazing. On one occasion, a witness reported seeing 250 crofts or or villages on fire from a single vantage point. And in 1816, the Duke's factor, Patrick Seller, was tried but acquitted on charges of arson and culpable homicide of an elderly woman. Um, There is a a kind of first-person testimonial of of one of the like of some of the things that went on. Hmm. Uh, Donald MacLeod he wrote a column in. a newspaper called the Edinburgh Weekly. He collected memories of his youth when he lived on the Duke of Sutherland's lands. He called them. He called the column "gloomy memories." Oh, um, I'm just going to read a quick bit from it here. Cool. Um, in earlier evictions, the people had been allowed to carry away this t- the timber of their houses to build houses on their new crofts when mm. they were evicted. Now, to make the people move more quickly, they set fire to the houses. After about two months' warning, the factor's men started to clear the people by setting fire to the houses over their heads. If their furniture was still in the house, it was burned with the croft house. The old people, women and others, then began to try and save the timber, which they believed was their own. Mm-hmm. Because they thought the, they had built the houses, or their ancestors had built the houses, they thought the clan's lands were held in trust for the mm. whole kind of extended family. 
they went wrong. <laughs> um, when they had finally knocked down all the houses, they finally set fire to the wreckage. In that way, timber, furniture and everything else that could not be taken away at once was utterly destroyed. Some old men took to the woods, wandering about in a state approaching absolute insanity. And several of them in this situation lived only a few days, and several children did not long survive their sufferings. Um, these clearances were still taking place as late as the 1880s. Um, in 1882, there was something called the Battle of the Brays, where 50 policemen arrived on Skye from Glasgow to help the landlord evict crofters from the land, only to be beaten back by large numbers of men, women and children. <laughs> so this obviously created a huge population crisis. Mm. Um, everybody tended to move either to the coasts, to kind of smaller fishing villages, or emigrate down south, um, or emigrate abroad, mm. which they were encouraged to do. Um, a further boost to immigration was given by uh, an old friend of ours, one that we've come across before, um, Irish Potato Blight. <laughs> which also came over in the 1870s. Um, there was also something called uh, compulsory emigration, in which landlords cancelled rent arrears and paid the passage of redundant families to their in their estates to North America and Australia. Uh, some idea of the stats. Uh, from 1760 to 1860, some 150,000 Highlanders and Islanders were cleared from their ancestral lands. To give a sense of the scale... Uh, in 1801, the population of the Highlands, Western Isles and Argyll and Butte areas was 260,000. So that's like over half the population um, deported or otherwise had to clear mm. off the land. Mm. Um, in 1750, a third of Scotland's population lived north of the Highland Line. Today, it's just 5%. Mm. And in 1811, there were 250,000 sheep in the Highlands. And by the 1840s, there were over a million. Um Another way that they could get out of the Highlands was they would find willing new paymasters in the British Army, hmm. of course. Uh, tough mountain men proved to be quite good shock troops in a lot of wars against France and in colonial lands. Is that a recurring thing? Like um, the joke about was it the king's the coin in the bottom of the pint jug? Oh yeah, taking the king's shilling. That's it. Yeah. To like trick people into joining the army. Yeah. And it's like. No, no, the English got a better one than that. And that is utterly devastating your way of life and leaving yes. you to either die of starvation and exposure or go abroad and kill for us. <laughs> As a final kind of um, shitty thing, because again, this is the era of suspicion and cruelty mm. among the English um, elite. So uh, tartan was still banned, mm. but you could wear tartan if you were in the army. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> <laughs> That's... Such, that's yeah. like just that's like it's not even a big thing it's just a, a, a very a very particularly english sense of cruelty well uh the, the the and the other fucking thing um of course to be mentioned is the fact that the british empire had these racial classifications of martial mm. races the highlanders were counted as a martial race mm. so they were there were extra efforts gone to recruit in in scotland yeah and it's like by the way you got beaten really badly 100 years ago but you're really good so one day you will join me. Yeah. It's it's gross. Um, so the, I've gone into quite a lot of detail about the Highland Clearances because it does demonstrate... It is kind of the main emotive topic of Scottish nationalism. It's their... What's the thing it's that their famine. changes the entire shape of it? Yeah. It's their famine. It's their... Um, what's the Welsh... What's the largest Welsh... I mean, Aberfan... Well, no, Aberfan was like a, a slightly different of diaspora. Thing, isn't it? But you've got to think about symbols of Welsh nationalism and... 
like oh what like incidents, the kind of rallying in, cries in, in, yeah incidents well it's things like um, like Capo Kalin and Abafet like yeah sure. there are lots of little things but there are, Wales there, has more little things yeah yeah but there are those kind of things but the Highland clearances are, are Scotland's Scotland's one yeah um but I also kind of went in to say how like the old those old feudal elites are being turned into capitalist hmm. landlords. Yeah. Um, so while this is happening to all the Highlanders, the lords who were supposedly yeah. their clan chiefs, yeah, have fucked off. Yes, they have fucked off to go and live in Edinburgh. Hmm. Um, and the interesting, which is thing, very nice, though. which is <laughs> it's a it's a lovely place it to is live. A lovely city. As a red tier, <laughs> it is a lovely place to be. <laughs> um. But I think it's important to remember that this isn't a new class. This isn't the English coming along and colonising Scotland as such. This is the traditional Scottish landed elite adapting to changed game rules. They might not Mm. change them themselves, Mm. but they certainly stood to benefit from changes in Mm. social relations between ruler and ruled. Mm. The transfer of land from ancestral feudal to capitalist relations meant deprivation of population transfer um, and a large pliable workforce. Um, that was no longer such an asset to their landlords for what they could give them other than other than money, especially when they can graze their much, much more valuable sheep yeah. uh, on, on that land. Um, so you get this kind of image as these, as Scotland joins the empire, they become really, as well as being the military shock troops, they become the kind of intellectual shock troops mm. of imperialism and specifically that capitalist liberal well, like imperialism. The, the image of the... Well, the um, Scottish lawyer. Yes. Because of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is another kind of strike against it as a colony because the image mm. of Scottish people as an energetic, industrious people, mm. that's not usually something that's given to a subject population. You no, don't hear um, like English popular kind of uh, race theory talking about mm. Indians or Irish in that way. It's mm. exactly the opposite. It justifies their rule over them. Mm. But because they've gone entered into a kind of arrangement with the Scottish mm. They have to kind of treat them, treat them well. Yeah. It's like it's a partnership. One is very much a minor partner in it, but mm. it's still a partnership mm. as opposed to subjugated. Yeah, um, for the for the um, ruling class at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, Michael Hector, in the introduction to the 2017 edition of his book, uh, we talked about him before. Mm. The guy who wrote Internal Colonialism. Um, he wrote about the kind of reception of his book in Scotland was very very different from mm. what he'd had in uh, Ireland and Wales. Um, he says that the Highlands were treated as an internal colony was one thing, but many Scots could not possibly imagine how the Lowlands could be so described. One irate Scottish reader fired off a three-page letter to my publisher enumerating a long list of Scottish firsts, from logarithms to bleaching powder, and concluded with the suggestion that you respectfully advise Michael Hector that Scotland has reached the peak of its industrial revolution before the USA had even started. The USA did not start properly until after the Civil War and consequently had a flying start as a result of the creative efforts of the Scots who he has chosen, sh- who, whom he has so studiously attempted to denigrate. <laughs> um, so yeah, Scotland has a high degree of internal autonomy. Hmm. It still has its own um, legal, educational and religious institutions. So under Hector argues that um, while it does have all the kind of uh, factors of being a kind of colony, of being hmm. an, an empire territory, um, it allows certain like occupational niche, niche, niches for incumbents who otherwise identify as distinctively Scottish. Hmm. So you can be an expert in Scottish law and still be a Scot. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? You can still conduct a bourgeois existence 
and a professional join the professional classes and yeah. be a Scottish person, which quite often with Wales and Ireland you, mm. you can't do. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. Overall, the Highland clearances and imperial failure sent Scottish development, like capitalist development, into reverse. So rather than developing home industry and utilizing the kind of resources, the Scottish bourgeoisie kind of. Um, Assent to the Act of Union, which then gives them the capital to fulfil their own like destiny and mm. develop their own capitalist mode of production, but not for them, mm. if you know what I mean. Um, the military failure at Culloden and the subsequent Act of Union led to the military suppression and legal abolition of feudal social relations, while keeping the actual people and the keeping the actual people and the feudal jurisdictions of the Scottish Lords intact. Um, the imposition of capitalist social relations set up an alliance of those former feudal lords and upwardly mobile tenant farmers and the intellectuals of the of the Scottish Enlightenment. Feudalism and independence was destroyed not by kings, not mm. by uh, foreign invaders, but by the efforts of an indigenous bourgeoisie, mm. who, while they benefited from it, from it changing into a kind of more capitalist society, they hadn't actually worked to get it. Mm. There is a kind of common element of like they become super expert on capitalism mm. and kind of very uh, idealistic about liberalism and capitalism while not actually having to have gone through the shit to create a capitalist state. Yeah. Yeah. These were kind of ministers, university professors and lawyers. <clears throat> and they um, out of this period, you get people like Adam Smith. Um, he doesn't argue that you um, have to like. He's like a, a top bourgeois economist and, and philosopher. He doesn't argue that you have to fight and conquer the aristocracy mm. as classical like Marxist or, or class theory would have you have you have it. Um, you don't have to fight and conquer the aristocracy. You don't have to eliminate them. You just have to make sure that they're not monopolistic and they operate mm. in a free market way. It's like, they're not nice. so bad. <laughs> yeah, they're not so bad. They just need to cool it with all the military stuff. Yeah. And then we'd all be good. That kind of thing. Um they didn't need a, a social revolution because it wasn't necessary. Like the bourgeoisie in England had the English Civil War in which they actually put down mm. the kind of king and a lot of the kind of old way, old aristocratic ways of doing things. They had to do that through war and through, through suffering. Mm. Scottish bourgeoisie didn't have to do that. And as such, yeah, you get like Adam Smith, David Hume, um, a lot of the like liberal intellectuals that are kind of lauded now definitely are still part of liberal canon mm. um, you get them coming directly out of this political situation and, and lowland Scottish universities it's quite telling that leading lights of liberalism got to their position just by turning a blind eye to the wholesale slaughter of their own people <laughs> kind of makes sense uh, who's one of the biggest um, proponents of, of empire right now it's fucking Neil Ferguson mm. Scottish Mm. And I mean, okay, he has that traditional old thing of uh, he was raised in Kenya, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's the one who who suggests that actually all this is actually really good. Mm. And I'm not saying he was he's particularly taking it from a Scottish perspective. I don't think, mm. especially since the development of the working class in Scotland is probably Scotland's probably more famous for working class militancy now than it is. Yeah. For kind of a bourgeois society but I think it's one of those things that goes unhidden until you look at the number the sheer number of like Scottish university professors and graduates that come out across the like 
19th and 20th yes. century. Yeah, so Scottish capitalism exists now in partnership with the English as part of the British Empire. They Again, they take a huge role and they're very identifiable as Scots within the British Empire. They're never called English, hmm. not like, say, Welsh figures. They're never kind of called British or anything they, like that. They get they to are wear called, national dress in the army. Yeah, they get to wear national dress in the army, but they're kind of... Um, Although the Welsh had a national dress with <coughs> stupid hats. <laughs> the big hats. I always think they look like um, Dutch... It, it's probably I'm thinking, from, that's what I'm thinking right am I like pu- like what I think of as Puritan but yeah. might actually be just traditional dress yeah yeah I always think about that um, you have Scottish um, banks all over the city um, mm. most of its um, industry and uh, uh, institutions were owned and controlled within Scotland mm. so um so they actually kind of marry up with the empire quite well, but obviously, you get to the 20th century, empire isn't what it used to be. Mm. Um, so you start seeing the, the seeds of nationalism, Scottish nationalism and, and separatism and independence coming up uh, about the same time as deindustrialization. Mm. Um, so it's like a section of that same bourgeoisie, like looking at what's become of British capitalism and the British empire and deciding actually we could probably take capitalism better hmm. in a better direction for Scotland yeah, than they could. Because we wouldn't have shut down our shipyards yeah. type logic, even though they probably would have. Oh yeah, they absolutely <laughs> would have. I, yeah. I haven't seen any particular plan from the SNP to bring them back. No. Um, so many of the Scottish middle classes have lost faith in the British state now, so they want a kind of Scottish instead of the British state, a Scottish state hmm. now to do their business instead of the British state. Um, so you have the discovery of oil in the North Sea in the in the 60s, <clears throat> which uh, coincides with the SNP kind of winning their first um, few seats in Westminster. And at this point, the SNP are like proper right wing. Um, yeah, they are. They're mostly... Um, it's largely because when they were set up, they were purely the party of the Scottish mm. bourgeoisie. Like somebody points out that like... You know, you have the image of a typical like Labour voter or mm. a typical Tory voter. Apparently, in the seventies, the typical SNP voter was like an oil executive, <laughs> because that was yeah. that was where that lay. Um, and like, if you look at the modern kind of Scottish political situation, Tories are as toxic there as they are anywhere. Mm. Um, after Thatcher, she is incredibly unpalatable to even middle class voters because they again they can see from a slight distance that she is not for them mm. she makes their environs actively worse mm. through you know monetarism and neoliberalism and deindustrialization and all that kind of stuff um, and so you get a whole generation of middle class voters who grow up thinking hey centre left right mm. that might not be so bad if we had our own state mm. um but for quite a long time, the SNP couldn't really make any headway, partially because of the first-past-the-post system. Mm. Um, it was never well represented. Um, Labour could usually bring out the industrial working classes up until the kind of late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and the SNP didn't have a lot of working-class support. Mm. Couldn't, it, it hadn't made that cross-class alliance, mm. uh, which it would do in the, in the later 2000s. Uh, the Scottish Parliament comes around, which I've read a few theories about why Labour decided to do the Scottish Parliament, and 
apparently it seems to be a combination of like a vague like liberal radicalism but mostly the idea that if the Tories ever came back in England they would be able to hide in Scotland and Wales <laughs> in the assemblies and just come back mm. because they're always going to win Wales they're always going to win Scotland yeah. so if the Tories take England we'll keep our MPs and mm. we'll just come back again when they fail because yeah. Tories always build up that amount of resentment especially yeah. post Thatcher mm. They don't promise anything other than like harm and terror and destruction. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> uh, the Scottish Parliament is voted under the additional member system, which is still kind of first past the post, mm. but does allow a lot more representation. It's designed to prevent any one party from dominating the Parliament. Which the SNP still managed to... Um, which they have, they've still managed to do it. Like uh, Labour had to go into coalition with the Lib Dems um, from 1990 to 2007. Um, even when the SNP really started surging in 2007, it could only govern in a minority, so it couldn't call a referendum on independence. Mm. Um, traditionally, the SNP tended to do better and get more MPs when Labour was in power. The idea being that if Labour is in power in Westminster, you need the SNP because otherwise Labour will ignore it. So mm. the SNP, they're likely to get more demands out of Labour yeah. because Labour are going to be at least on paper sympathetic mm. to like Scottish nationalism and the aims mm. the aims of that. Um, as opposed to when the Tories are in power, in which case you vote Labour because you need to then have your you Scottish concerns alliances. Well, you need to have your Scottish concerns put in Westminster by a Labour opposition mm. because you haven't got an SNP opposition there. Yeah. Labour will always maybe talk to the SNP and yeah. bring them in. Tories aren't, so you need Labour there. Mm. You know. And the relationship between um, Welsh Labour and Westminster sort of proves that you kind of need mm-hmm. that SNP. You because otherwise you'll just be ignored. There are definitely there are definitely lessons for that. Mm. I, I have no clue whether Welsh Labour are ever going to learn those lessons because they seem fucking terrible. No, they seem like the worst exactly, of the doing local exactly parties. What they want. They're the worst of the like quote unquote local parties. Mm. Um, so what changed in the 2000s was the SNP finally managed to get hold of their kind of cross-class uh, alliance mm. that they uh, that they were looking that they needed to put them over the top. So the north of Scotland now has a kind of quite a, because of North Sea oil has um, quite a large like farming and fishing uh, like. I wouldn't say kind of mass farming, but it has a it has a richer farming industry than it's ever had. Um, Perhaps quite, for obviously like, fewer people. I but. think it's like it's fancier farming. Mm. It's like it's fancy cows and it's like I lobster think and fancy fancy seafood like yeah. salmon farms and that kind yeah. of stuff. And I think sheep and yeah cows, fancy coos. and stuff like that. Um, so they can put big business at the heart of their campaign because mm. those Highlanders are probably directly benefit from having a friendly voice closer to to Scotland, right? So they can put a big business pitch Mm. towards them. So, and on the East Coast and Central Belt, they put forward kind of uh, progressive conservative ideas because that's like the, that's where the bourgeoisie live. Mm. Um, And then in the old industrial West, they can take on the mantle that Labour abandoned under Blair, Mm. which is we are the party of workers. We will give you like, we'll give you it like, social welfare a, a, a safety net and we'll give you all Free the education. all the like yeah all the left wing mm. uh, policies that you're lacking from a labor a labor government yeah i find it slightly weird i mean i'm sure I'd, if i looked into it more i would find more of it but i feel like in comparison to ireland and wales scotland has 
way less of a cultural, like uh, an emphasis on like cultural nationalism of bringing back, like the SNP are very concerned about making themselves seem modern and mm. they are a fighting modern political party. There is a push with like, like if you're going to look, especially in, in Britain with regards mm. to like cultural things with nationalist movements, they are, they do push the Scottish language. Yes, Not, Scottish Gaelic, yeah. Yeah, I don't think they push for it as hard as like Welsh nationalists do or Irish nationalists. There's still a, I think there's still a huge split because like, after the uh, Highland clearances, one of the things that happened was the um, uh, there were a lot of kind of nonconformists, mm. and the kind of Church of Scotland pushed into the Highlands mm. and did the same thing they did in Wales and Ireland, which was to kind of reach out to them in Gaelic and then teach them that you know Gaelic is the devil's language. Yeah, you know that kind of thing. I yeah. think there's still that that split. I mean, going way back. Uh, I think like the Highlands were mostly dominated by Scandinavian countries until oh, yeah. um, like the fifth, 1400s. Um, my mum and stepfather have what is essentially a land yacht yeah. that they live in. Their massive bus thing. Yeah. Um, they go to the the like the islands, the like the islands way north, north of like everything else, like Sky and yeah, they stuff go like to, to those places, and um, they said that they they don't seem Scottish. Like my stepfather seems Scottish. He's he look yeah. he's he's he looks Scottish, <laughs> um, but no, they're like they're like six seven foot tall and blonde. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a very and the the accent is very different. The accent. I was watching a program actually on the I think it was like Hebrides, mm. and uh, you listen to the way that they lilt in English, and like it is a Scottish accent, but it's like that sounds Scandinavian. Yeah, it sounds Norwegian. Mm. It's really it's fascinating, but it kind of shows you the separation between the kind. Oh, of... Oh, they are super separate from. And I mean, else. I don't want to call them like the Lowlanders English Scots because I think probably Lowland Scotland has its own. I mean, we've already oh, yeah, kind of talked about it. It has its own identity as like mm. an intellectual, cultural, mm. economic area in itself. Um, but yeah, the more urbanized kind of mm. thing. I suppose that's maybe the main cultural thing is like there's still this idea of Scot Scottish people as like wild and. Mm. Uh, stuff like that, which is bizarre and very old-fashioned, but I know that it still persists right through the 20, 20th century. I mean, yeah. there are still like you know those like uh, hoary old like sketch shows where you've got a Scottish person who a fucking um, uh, a porridge. Mm. You know, porridge like the main um, prison guard is Scottish, mm. and so all of the jokes are about like Jock and mm. and how like you know how he's a hard hard man and all yeah. that kind of thing. Directly yeah. associated with. The empire, but also directly associated with the kind of image of Scot Scottish people in England. Hmm. You know, yeah. There's um. There's definitely things. I think there's less of a desire, a less of a need to like call back on and like defend cultural like touchstones in yeah. Scotland because in general they survived. They also have a political program. Yeah, they have a. Clear, they can afford to be like they modern came, and look forward, look forward looking, and like with regards to the SNP, looking at like with yeah. all their things, and not focus on things like um, national dress and all that kind of stuff, because that stuff was never properly gotten rid of. It, it doesn't got rid of them, then re reintroduced. With the independence referendum, they've shown that they don't need as much of a national myth. I mean, mm. I've never, I've never seen Nicola Sturgeon talk about like Scottish history as a history of grievance mm. and of imperial domination. Mm. 
I you hear her touch lightly on the fact that they feel like they're a, a mistreated partner almost. Yeah, I think there's definitely that because but there's the also language that. is very different from like Ireland, obviously Ireland yeah. and the British. But there's is also like, that that thing of we've had it when we've talked about all these um, the fact that a, a subjugated a colonized people hmm. don't like and especially the white ones hmm. don't like to think of themselves as being colonized because that yeah. isn't what happens to them and until the Scottish... until afterwards hmm. when it serves as a national yeah. unifying myth for its own rulers it, yeah. Um, yeah whereas scotland they it's easier for them to say they weren't colonized because hmm. you know like a, a lawyer in scotland was exactly the same straight afterwards yeah. In fact, he was probably better off because he was signing all those deals. Yeah. Sorting out all those contracts. And he's the only and he's the only one, I say he, mm. they mm. are the only one who can do it because Scottish law is different. Mm. So know? they get to their bourgeoisie survived. Yes. Whereas like the Welsh and the Irish bourgeoisies were gotten rid of. Yeah. Or didn't exist. Or or were distorted in ways that made them less connected with the places where the actual working class were. Mm. Well the Welsh bourgeoisie was formed in London. A, yeah. They didn't exist in a kind of in a nation with the working class. They might yeah. as even if they were living in Wales or they were living in Ireland, they might as well have been living in London. Mm. You know, mm. they're not they're not for them. Mm. Whereas the and Scottish bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie are kind of for them for themselves. Like I take the piss, but Edinburgh does feel very much like a like a nice city in the southeast. Mm. Like it's. The way it's constructed, the oh, way it's nicer than that, surely. <laughs> I've been to many towns in the southeast. You know what I mean? Edinburgh it, must be nicer than that. It, Otherwise, I've been grossly misinformed. It doesn't feel like Cardiff. <laughs> I have never been to Cardiff. Um, don't. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it at all. You've listened to Desolation Radio. It's not. Worth oh yeah, it's, it's not worth it. There, there are nice places. Uh, sometimes to go in Wales. it's not nice to go to Cardiff. It's not. Yeah. Um, if, like, I haven't been to Cardiff since I was about eleven or twelve. Mm. My dad refuses to go, and he lived there for years. Um, <laughs> Not even for a nostalgia? No, no, no. Well, he said, well, um, I've brought that up with him, and he's like, what's the point? Because mm. it's all gone now. Oh, yeah, it's all been uh, yeah. bulldozed over plastic and steel. Yeah, so what, what's the point? Mm. He can't go to that um, that um, blues club where you had to where you paid 50p to get in, and they handed you a pasty. Hell, yeah. That's the best place. <laughs> the true hard men. The he's man like, of that blues club. <laughs> When he gets, when him and his best mate get really drunk and they start lamenting like their their like their their youth, it's never like their marriages that failed. It's that club <laughs> and how sad they are over the passing of that club. Between them, they've got four failed marriages between them. <laughs> oh. Speaking of failed marriages, yeah. <laughs> um, so we've come to the end of like talking about the the Celtic nations. Mm. Learned a lot about, you know, trying to combine five to six to eight hundred years of history in an hour, <laughs> maybe 40 minutes. Uh, maybe I won't try and do that again. Quite hard. Um, it's quite difficult. But I think if there's one thing that we've kind of come away from this with, it's that, like, for all the talk about, you know, Great Britain hmm. and the, you know, it, it being this eternal thing, it's it's really not. Like, no. the union has all, and, it, and it's, I don't think it's ever been as simple as, Britain going out and imposing and oppressing hmm. other countries. I mean, you might, it's probably closest to it in Ireland. There are always oppressive factors of living under an imperialist state. Hmm. There always are. But 
what changes the character is the reaction of the kind of the bourgeoisie of those countries within a capitalist context. This is not to say that the working classes mm. have no agency, mm. but under those conditions, their own bourgeoisies are enemies to them as much as the foreign bourgeoisie of the English. Mm. The way that those states develop is um, conditioned by the way that the, the the native bourgeoisie kind of interact with British imperialism and what they benefit from it. It's a it's a, a trade. Sometimes you get a lot, lot less, like mm. in Ireland, and sometimes you get quite a lot of what you want as regards Scotland. Um, it's easy to try and compare kind of the Celtic nations to like other more heavily racialized peripheries, India, Africa. Yeah. And I think like while it's useful to try and work out the colonial and imperial relationship that Britain had with those countries, because obviously it is still an imperial and colonial relationship, I think it does a disservice to just the sheer level of destruction done to mm. India and Africa and imperial oh, yeah. imperial colonies overseas. It's perhaps more helpful to think of the Celtic nations as having like proto-imperial characteristics. Mm. You know, it, it, Testing. it's different. Um I wanted to just end on a, a... Testing stuff out. Yeah. They were it's trying like, stuff. It's like, and they still do it to this day. Yeah. Um, where was the poll tax first? Yeah. In Scotland. Scotland. Um, where it's like, whenever you see some new thing that's being done in the NHS, where it'll was, be done in Wales. Where was um, anti-Muslim terrorist detention first tried out? Hmm. And 28 days yeah. uh, without charge. Yeah. Look up without charge. It Ireland. was Northern Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not it's not a good comparison, I don't think, but mm. it's definitely definitely felt like it was worth going through. Mm. Um, I just it's want, good to see why yeah, why why Britain is the way it is. Yeah. Why also there is no such thing as Great Britain. Yeah, it's it and makes when you have less progressive in, nationalists talking about a British nationalism in any way that could be any like it can't exist in yeah. a well for a start nationalism is iffy at best mm. and, and the idea of an inclusive progressive British nationalism is impossible I have my own problems with like when they go all English nationalist mm. with it but where, especially when they go with British nationalists mm-hmm. the conditions that created Great Britain mm. no longer exist mm-hmm. and with Brexit mm. are becoming more and more remote to the way that political um, political institutions work mm. on these islands mm-hmm. you know there's nothing uh, that's forever about this situation. It is no. that close from Scotland. I think um, Nicola Sturgeon's going to do another independence yeah. run again. Don't blame her. Which makes perfect fucking sense. How close did they come last time? I can't remember the exact. It was, it was within ten percent. It was within. A, it was in a couple of percent. It was yeah. like a handful. And that was they. And they lost through lies. Yeah. Through straight lies of promises. Yeah. And well, one of the main promises of you. This is the only way you get to stay in Europe. Yeah. Scotland are massively pro-Europe. There was promises of more money. Where's that money? Yeah. The the yeah. I mean, there's kind of similar things that happened with with Brexit that happened with it there, and you mm. can you can see the differing because English fubpies outraged that they were lied to. Mm. I'm sorry, a lot of those liberals were very much pro-union when it came to Scotland. Yeah, they they really are. They still are now. And it shows you the differing attitudes. That's the other side of the coin that those are the differing attitudes that the English have towards mm. those kind of the Celtic countries. Definitely. You know, it's mm. weird. I just wanted to end on a, a quote from Engels. Um, in Anti-During, he sets out that the ability of any ruling class to extract surplus labour is not based upon force. 
no amount of force can extract, extract a surplus where the level of economic development or productivity does not make such a surplus possible. So what it is the development of material conditions of production and productive relations that create the conditions for those same relations to be reproduced. Force is used to keep a ruling class in power when those underlying relations, including the dominant ideas that flow from them, break down. Hmm. So that's why it's not quite a colonial relationship. It's not just force imposed from outside. It's force to maintain them, hmm. but the actual dominant modes of production with the Celtic nations was set in, set in place with other things. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'm going to finally end on just a little thing. We <coughs> talked about it earlier um, with my favourite prince. Mm-hmm. Um, and after this, I'm sure he'll be all of your favourite prince too. Um, Prince Edward, Earl of Wessex. Oh. Just going to give you a little rundown of his amazing, like, outstanding achievements. Okay, so, first off, he went to Gordon's tomb, like, oh, right. so like all the other boys, and, and Andrew. Yeah. Um, so he went to Gordon's tomb, that was it, the um, Colditz and Kilts. Yep. Um, and was appointed head boy in his last term. He finished his A-levels with a C and two Ds. <laughs> Which, that's fine. They've never that's, been noted for their like smart, their book smarts, have yeah, they? That, well, that that uh, close to my A levels. Um, um, and after leaving, yeah, but you could have done better. You, um, yeah, I could have. Yeah. <laughs> um, and after leaving school, spent a gap year abroad working as a house tutor and junior master for two terms at Wanganui Collegiate School in New Zealand. Uh-huh. Upon his return, he matriculated at Jesus College, Cambridge. Is New Zealand like the holiday colony where they send all the fail sons? I think it might be. They send them to Australia to play cricket, then they send them to New Zealand if they really fucked up. Just stay out of If they way. can't even play cricket. <laughs> yeah. um, his admission to Cambridge caused some controversy since his A-level grades were so bad. Um, and at that point, they did require straight A's. Um, he graduated with a 2-2 in history. Oh, that's not bad. That's what I did. Yeah. There we go. Upon I'm the... suddenly feeling very, like, uh, very warm towards him. Very, very... Yeah. On leaving university, he joined the Royal Marines as an officer cadet, um, having been sponsored by the Marines for his um, with twelve thousand pounds towards his tuition at Cambridge. So oh, we, he needed it. Yeah, yeah, he needed it. Um, on in January nineteen eighty seven, however, Edward dropped out after a grueling commando course after have uh, out of a grueling commando course after having completed just one third of the twelve months training. <laughs> Media reported at the time that the move prompted a berating from Philip, who reduced his son to prolonged tears. Prolonged tears. Prolonged. Now Philip's quite meant to be quite a dragon. Yes. Right. Yes. So when we say prolonged, I, I think um, are we talking hours, days? Do I say dare say even months? I think a long. I think to dynasties the point, of tears. Did he cry for a dynasty? I've got a sneaking suspicion that when Philip can muster up the energy to raise his voice, his sons still quiver a bit. Um, I think it's amazing that like not so many likes of them... to like laugh at child abuse. Um, it's hard not to like just be like, fascinated. Well, it's by like he's the... this big. He's this big like historically he was this big action man, and mm. all of his sons are That's huge, terrible. huge failures. Yeah. I mean, like obviously different circumstances, having been in the war in mm. the World War and um, having been a, like an exiled prince. Mm. But <laughs> yeah, he did spawn. Quite physically unimposing figures, didn't he? Um, others claim that Philip was in fact the most sympathetic family member, and that and that he understood his son' decision. Huh. I think that's bollocks. 
Did um, that did that statement come out, you know, several years after the original story was reported? Yes. <laughs> in a book by one of the official royal biographers. Um after leaving the Marines, Edward opted for a career in entertainment. He commissioned the 1986 <laughs> musical <laughs> Cricket from Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice for his mother's 60th birthday. Does the word cricket have an exclamation point at the end? Unfortunately, it does not. Damn it! Cricket! <laughs> um, this led to a job offer from Lloyd Webber's um, theatre company, where then he, prog- then he proceeded to work as a production assistant on Phantom of the Opera, Starlight Express, and Cats, and some others. Production assistant. Now, for people who don't know what a production assistant is, that's someone who hands out scripts and makes tea. It's um, awesome. Nowadays, it's the, they do hey, sometimes hey. have a bit more responsibility, it's, but back then, no, that was literally all look, they did. It's the, look, they're just following the traditional aristocratic line of succession. You know, the first one goes into the family firm, <laughs> the second one becomes a PR agent for an Uzbekistani dictator, <laughs> and the third one goes into show business, the modern <laughs> church. It's perfectly acceptable English Aristo way of raising your kids. Um, then Edward went into television production with the program The Grand Knockout Tournament, informally known as It's a Royal Knockout. Oh God, yeah, that was he got that was he got a load of shit for that, didn't he? Yeah, he had um, four teams sponsored by him, Princess Anne, the Duke and Duchess of York, competed for charity. The media attacked the program. It was later reported that the Queen was not in favour of the event and that her courtiers had advised against it. <laughs> so that failed. Um, in '93, he formed a television production company called Arden Productions. Like any obnoxious rich kid with nothing to do in Kensington and Chelsea, <laughs> he formed a production company. Um, the company was referred to by some industry insiders as a sad joke due to the perceived lack of professionalism in its operations. The Guardian opined that to watch Arden's few dozen hours of broadcast output is to enter a strange kingdom where every man in Britain still wears a tie, where pieces of camera are done in cricket jumpers, where people clasp their hands behind their backs like guardsmen. Commercial breaks are filled with army recruiting advertisements. Jesus! Um, They were better... His programmes were better received in America. Um, And in particular, um, one of his documentaries sold rather well worldwide. This is a documentary Edward made about his granduncle, Edward VIII. <laughs> oh, the Nazi. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, nonetheless, the company reported losses every year operated, save one. Um, um, in 2001, an ardent two-man film crew was alleged to have invaded the privacy of his own nephew, Prince William, <laughs> while he was studying at St Andrews against industry guidelines regarding the privacy of members of the royal family. Charles was reportedly hankered by the incident. Um, in 2002, he announced he'd stand down to... Um, concentrate on his public duties and to support the Queen during her Golden Jubilee. Um, it, Arden Productions voluntarily dissolved in 2009 with its assets, assets reduced to just £40. Little did they know that he actually went to the Queen and said, uh, I'm standing down, I really need to support the family in this time. But he had one of those giant cowboy hats like they have in <laughs> Simpsons with a cowboy Do ignore the cowboy hat. <laughs> um, mainly, the thing that's making me giggle is now... One of his main things now is um, he has been appointed the Lord High Commissioner to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. <laughs> of course. Fucking normal country. Normal. Normal country. It's like, uh, what's your, you know, what religion are you? It's, oh, I'm the church that was had a leader appointed by, you know, the leader of another country. Oh, and he's taken over his father's duties of the Duke of Edinburgh Awards. So who better to do the um, the failure equivalent of the... Is it, Chief Scouts Challenge. Yeah. Yeah. The the one the one who failed and dropped out of the army. 
That's such a, isn't he great? They're such a beautiful. Like, they all are in their own. Edward's in his own special way. It's such a beautiful fail son. <laughs> but it's it's so heartening. I mean, like they haven't got the. <laughs> They haven't got There's the kind. Those eyes. They haven't got the kind of visceral um, atavism to go gallivanting around the world and like conquering countries and, and sleeping with like native beauties that Victoria's kids have. Or Philip had. Contra- or Philip had. <laughs> yeah. Contracting syphilis. Yeah. Like a man. <laughs> These terrible fail Getting royals. tattoos and contracting syphilis like a real king like of a, England. Like a proper king. Yeah, that's a proper, a proper member of the royal family. Gets syphilis and it gets covered up. George V had a huge dragon tattoo across his back that's real by the way that's not that's not made up like, he actually went to japan and got a huge dragon tattoo across his back that's badass which is badass well that's the kind of royal family that you kind of want you want them to be like out there and different um that's one of the reasons why this latest batch of royals are gonna are probably gonna be the last because what's so special about them yeah as they, as they dilute it more we're not going to see the likes as they get of, uh, closer to um, doing it's a knockout again, <laughs> because they will. Mm-hmm. They will. One of them will overstep them after the queen dies. Mm-hmm. Queen won't allow it because mm-hmm. she's got nous. Mm-hmm. Despite her outfits, despite how she dresses, she knows to just shut up mm-hmm. because the worst thing you can do is open your mouth and be oh, yeah. confirmed a fool. That mm-hmm. old, old, old saying. But one of them, one of them is going to step too far. And is going to go on first dates. <clears throat> One of them is going to do it. They're going to get divorced. And do the Michael be, Fabricant. Yes. Won't be it's a celebrity because, you know, they can't be that long in the sun. But <laughs> it, it's first dates, I reckon. So good. Eight out of ten cats. Oh. <laughs> Royal edition. Yeah. Royal countdown. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us at WDT eighty W underscore podcast. Follow me at BM Bergamo and follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And that's us for this week. Cool. Bye. I love my country. Hee hee da hee hee da doo. But oh, that war has made me blue. I like fighting. That's my name. But fighting am the least about the fighting game. When Mr. Hoover said to cut my...